right? I think there's too much like hide your goals, don't say anything because you know we don't want to talk about our goals. And it's like it's at the end of the day, I think what I learned is just running. You know, like Laura Green right now and her like amazing videos, like you know, no one cares. Like in a way, we care the most, right? So like let's own our goals. Like let's say those goals out loud. Like it's inspiring to others to hear them. It keeps us accountable and it makes it real. Hey, welcome back to the next episode of the Trail Running Women podcast. I have one of my favorite episodes to date, which is pretty crazy because we are well over 200, well as in like five. But still, I was listening to another podcast, ironically, about how shows do well. And the number one kind of answer was longevity. So we've done pretty good and a huge part of that is just you guys making it so much fun and interacting with me and suggesting guests and reaching out on instagram and chatting that is hillsport 55 if you want to find me there and that is where this guest was recommended so i'm chatting with lauren andrews who for the first time we talked not even for so long but with so many topics in such depth that I'm breaking it into two episodes. So I normally like to keep them around 45 minutes and we did get to a point where we were well over an hour and I think I even say in the podcast, I'm going to split this into two, but again, it's because of the sections. So we've talked a bit about people who have decided not to drink because it just isn't suiting them and this kind of new idea that you don't need to be addicted to alcohol to not want to drink it, but we haven't spoken to very many people, maybe one or two, that really did need to stop because it was becoming a problem. And Lauren really shares very openly and honestly, and I really appreciate that because I think, especially with young people who are driven and feeling pressure to kind of succeed, it's really nice for them to hear somebody they can relate to. And she's very well-spoken. I think you're going to get sucked into her story and not even know that you're running if that's what you're doing. Uh, And if you do have a long run plan that you don't have company for, I suggest these, maybe even save the back to back. So number two will come out next Thursday and number two gets into her pregnancy journey and, and coming back and having injuries both during pregnancy as well as postpartum and then navigating, becoming this outstanding runner and then getting pregnant, dealing with loss and COVID and all of the things that happened. And it was a very amazing story to just sort of get sucked into. Again, highly recommend if you are going for that run to listen to this. And I will talk more in the next intro about what episode number two is like, but it also was very moving. And I really appreciate anybody who is reaching out on Instagram and finding me. It's Hillsport 55. And that's actually where Lauren was recommended. So please do keep sending guests there. I love hearing from them. And in that link, you'll also find the Patreon link, which has the backlog of all the episodes. There's 50 or 60 up there now uh, since we are over 200 and they don't all stay on the internet. And I'm also doing a blog for my marathon training. And the most recent one was March, but I'll do one for April because I just blew up in a race and it was so simple that I just made mistakes that I know I shouldn't make, including like how to rest for a race. It's just so funny how you sometimes have to do these races to remember the same lessons over and over again. Mah. 
Okay, I'm going to leave it at that. Thanks to everyone who's leaving ratings and reviews again, and I think you guys are absolutely going to enjoy this and chat soon. All right, I'm super excited to be joined today with a guest that was a listener request, and you have so much going on in your story, including pregnancy and some elite running and some awesome accolades, as well as getting sober. So there's so much to get into with your story. I'm so excited you're here. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you so much, Hillary. Uh, this is my first podcast, so um, there's a first time for everything. And I <laughs> was shocked when <laughs> um, I found out um, a friend of mine requested me to be on your podcast. It's a huge honor, and I really love listening to your podcast. Well, thank you so much. That's awesome to hear. And I think the reason you were requested as I was perusing your Instagram is just your willingness to share some of the difficulties mm. you've kind of had with having children and being a runner and trying to intertwine all of it. So I'm, I'm really thankful that you're willing to share all of that. Yeah. It's um nowadays, like the whole social media world is just so saturated with like a million things. And for me, I don't always share in this way, but I do find, you know, if I'm going to bother to waste my time, <laughs> honestly, on social media, I'm going to at least speak honestly and openly. And I've found by doing so, I've been able to connect with some incredible people um, and become friends with them in real life. So, yeah, I think, you know, when I've gone through different hurdles in life, um, not always, but often... Um, I will share when I'm going through those and uh, it's, you know, a vulnerable thing to do, but it, it ultimately helps me as well. I've learned that by being open and honest with others, it creates connection. And for me, when I don't feel alone, um, usually I'm in a mentally better spot. Yes, for sure. And I think other people, whether they're willing to reach out to you or not, just seeing that other people are going through those things is so huge. Exactly. Okay, well, let's, before we get into kind of the recent stuff that's gone on in your life, let's get a bit of a, a background on you as an athlete and when you started running and if you played other sports and yeah. just sort of a general intro. Yes. So I actually grew up in North Vancouver um, and we just moved back here on Friday. So it's full circle. Half my lifetime I spent in North Van and then the other half I spent um, away from North Vancouver. I played mainly team sports growing up. I mainly played soccer, um, you know, even like t-ball, baseball, field hockey, volleyball. Bath like I was the kid that tried a lot of different sports. Um, I was never the child that made like the elite gold team or anything like that. I just honestly enjoyed the running piece of most of these team sports the most um, and the social side. Um, and I also played outside a lot, like a lot of, I think in hindsight, from an athletic perspective, if you were to like analyze it from a athletic development model, um, a lot of maybe what you could say is like talent or some sort of innate ability maybe wasn't that. It was just developed um, as a side effect of enjoying time running around in like a forest or going out there and building little dams and creeks and forts and trees and stuff like that. Um, I would go out with my sister or other friends and just explore. We called it like exploring <laughs> um, in the forest. And I also went to a cottage um, 
at a place called Lake of the Woods, Kenora, Ontario, where we spent a ton of time outside. Like we'd eat breakfast, go outside all morning to lunch, and then go outside all evening or all afternoon again, and then often in the evening. So, you know, yes, there was like the formalities of structured sport and activity. um, But I'd say a lot of my enjoyment of movement in space came through unstructured play. I kind of love that, actually. I think that gives you a better long-term handle on things. But equally, just in your bio, it's I will get into how fast you can run a marathon, but I think it's super interesting that you were seeing talent as you got older, but said you didn't have the mental resilience to have a competitive. Totally. I ran um in elementary and high school, like grade school for track and field and cross country. And, you know, never even made like the A relay team. I remember at one point feeling like, why didn't I make that team? Um, I I did see some potential in more of the distance front. So like the 1500 and, and above. And at one point was recruited to a local club um, based in North Vancouver. And there was some wonderful people who actually remain friends to this day in that club. But I just did not have the mental resiliency and the tools to handle what I thought was pressure. The coaching, to be quite honest, was excellent. No external pressure. I was placing pressure on myself and I I would get so nervous before these track meets. Like it would ruin my entire week. I was like physically sick about it. Like I just was not able to enjoy the sport. And I'm really grateful that I, you know, was able and allowed to take a step back and Um, when I went into university, I remember, I think it was the UBC coach was trying to recruit me there too. And I didn't, I ended up going down a very different path, um, in my early adulthood years, but, you know, fast forward 10 years later. And as I, um, developed, I, I suppose the mental tools and resiliency and, and the emotional maturity to see sport and competition as, a healthy amount of pressure or a privilege to be able to participate in the pre-race nerves that many runners I coach now and many of my friends have, and I have too, I was able to compartmentalize and handle and process them in a much healthier, uh, more actually applied way and use those nerves to my advantage instead of being owned by those nerves, right? So Um, For me, I suppose just my time um, was not meant to be like a childhood, you know, sort of competitive athlete. I I didn't find competitive, if you can even call it that, like structured training, I suppose, until my, I think I was 29 when I started to um, properly, (laughs) properly train for races um, again. So it was a long break from that and I don't regret it at all. That's so interesting because if you're not getting external pressure to just have that kind of internally on your own, were you like that academically as well? Yes. So I was like, like no joke in hindsight, I'm like, wow, like I must've been like, like a lot, (laughs) um, in a good way, but like, it was like upset if you get below 90%, you know, I was like playing classical piano. Like I was a very, very 
um, driven child. And I think that for me, and I've actually talked to another friend of mine who has a similar background. I had um, a very severe speech impediment as a through until grade three. Um, And so as a toddler and like until about age, I suppose like eight, um, my friendships were based on like either physicality or like I would play with other kids, but I couldn't communicate that well with them. So I took to doing um, games and like tag and hide and go seek and things like that because it felt easier to make connections with other kids. As a result, I actually played a lot with other boys um, and didn't do a lot with as much with girls. But I think from there, I, I felt this sort of need, I suppose, to like prove that um, I was a, you know, I was able, I was capable, um, I could apply myself, but I think it almost <laughs> probably, I probably took it too far. Um, and, you know, even like, you know, I love my parents dearly and they're amazing parents, but I remember my first report card, I got like a C plus or something in English. And I remember being asked about that specific grade, like, why do you think you got this grade? And I remember in my head being young and, you know, inexperienced and just a child, I thought to myself, I will never, ever allow myself to get anything less than like, you know, at minimum a B plus ever again. And so I went like that until, until university. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I suppose part of it was personality. Part of it was like life experience, but um I've really leveled off now (laughs) compared to how I was (laughs) growing up. You know, it's so challenging as a parent as well, because it's like, they're just looking for some curiosity Mm -hmm. into why. And we internalize that in such strange ways. And equally, I think my parents accidentally, if I had some great success, I was a hockey player. were so excited about it because your kid's so excited that you then internalize as a kid, oh, okay, so I'm loved because I'm really good at this. And so I have to be really good at this. And then you put the pressure the other way. So it's almost like you can't win. Oh, you just yeah. gotta Totally. Yeah, and so I mean, I think like, I, I definitely am not like, I've done a lot of work around um, for me and where my story ended up going, like what ultimately led to that. And and now, you know, doing things differently and especially now as a parent and, um, you know, I'm very aware that my parents, I'm very, very fortunate. They did the best they could with what they knew. And it's certainly nothing is their fault in my case. Um, Totally. Speaking to my individual experience. And as a parent going into, you know, the next years of parenthood, um, I am very well aware that I will do things to the best of my ability. And still my child will probably struggle with, whatever it is that they're going to struggle with and just almost accepting that right now. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's totally what I mean is that like, it is so not malicious how these things happen. And it's just a product of like whatever situation you happen to be in that day when you hear something and it can be that easy, but exactly. So I'm a bit, I'm a bit curious, actually, I was going to get into your, how we got into marathon running, but I want to back up a little bit Mm -hmm. and what I'm kind of seeing from what you wrote to me, if you're comfortable chatting about Mm -hmm. it is probably this perfectionist attitude possibly caught up to you. And then there were 
ways of handling it that weren't super healthy and then eventually getting sober at age 21. Is that? Yeah. So I ended up leaving um, to go to, well, not leaving, but I ended up moving out to go to university and very quickly, like within a period of months, I, I, I think for me, it was a huge, like in some ways relief to feel that freedom. But um, also I think there is some genetic components because down the pipeline, I was <laughs> told that like both sides of the family had um, relatives with addiction problems in my sort of family tree. Um, but I very quickly at a very young age um, started to use alcohol in what I would consider to be an unhealthy way. Um, at the time, I was very ignorant to that. So like I'd gone to house parties and all that jazz in high school. Um, and then very quickly at university, I started to use alcohol like multiple times a week. Um, you know, it was very easy, especially in university, like there is a massive drinking culture, right? And so I fit in, I felt, you know, I felt honestly, it made me feel like, probably for the first time ever outside of my, my own family, like really loved and like everything would be okay. And any worries or anxieties I had, or that sense of pressure I put on myself when I would drink, it just alleviated it. Um, I felt, you know, for a long time drinking, um, like it was in many ways, the answer for, for some of the, areas of my head that I had not found the tools to healthily um, improve, right? And so, you know, at first it started out very innocently and, and over about a year and a half, it went from like drinking at, you know, university parties and with friends to, you know, truthfully like buying alcohol and drinking it alone, Um every evening and then every evening turned into earlier and earlier in the day. And, um, I started to have financial problems and, and ultimately stopped being social as well, because I think any addiction, you know, ultimately the end is the same for most people where even if they're with others, they feel alone. And so the irony is I went full circle back to the years of, you know, when I was a small child and felt like I couldn't communicate or felt like I couldn't be understood, I, I started to almost inadvertently induce that upon myself um, by by the addiction. And um, within three years, you know, I was, and I haven't spoken very publicly about the extent or like the bottom, um, because I, I'm very aware that, especially right now, it's so wonderful to see people choosing not to drink for many different reasons. And I want to emphasize, like you do not need, and I would hope you don't go um, to the point where I got, because for me, it was a perfect storm of shame, um, wanting to continue a front of um, or a visage of um, health, although in hindsight, I'm sure no one's no one could no one saw it like that, um, and not wanting to talk about how bad it was, right? So at the end, I was basically drinking. Um, I mean, God, I, I don't even want to say the amount out loud because it doesn't. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. But I was very physically and psychologically addicted, and um, was in a relationship at the time with someone else who was ended up kind of going on the same path in tandem with me. And so it just, again, was this 
vicious cycle situation where um, I ended up dropping out of university. I couldn't hold a job. I ended up stealing um, like small, small crime stealing like from my partner or family members, um, like cash in their wallets in order to pay for um, my addiction, which was alcohol. Um, And I think there's a lot of misconception around like hard drugs versus alcohol and alcohol in my case, most certainly was, um, you know, just as life-threatening as being addicted to um, other hard drugs because at the end of the day, I needed physical assistance to detox and had seizures and um, was essentially hospitalized in order to get sober. And that is like, I owe my life to my family (laughs) and some of my closest longtime friends um, who I remain close with to this day because they, they saw um, what was really going on and, and with anyone, and this is just something I hope will help someone, maybe one person who's listening, but if anyone's listening who has someone in their life who's struggling with addiction, it's almost always impossible to get them to just accept help the first time you bring it up, right? Like in my case, it was over a year of them trying to intervene, trying to get me help, trying to, you know, take me to that meeting or take me to that counselor or whatever it was. And for me, it ultimately ended up with a police intervention where I was given no choice (laughs) um, but to get help and that saved my life, right? So in my viewpoint, um, you know, someone when they're in that type of an addiction, they're already so like insane (laughs) um, that it's really hard to like wait for them to like come to you. So I do feel like there is talk around they have to be ready, but it's really hard to feel ready when you're so physically addicted that all your brain thinks about every single minute of every day is how to get that next fill in the blank, whatever it is that they're addicted to. Right. So, um, yeah, so that was like all before the age of 21. Um, And so I got sober at age 21 um, and was put into an institution and was told it would be two weeks and was there <laughs> for several months. And that changed my life though. And I, again, am so privileged, like, like literally, um, you know, when we talk about privilege, like one issue I have with all of this is that a lot of addiction treatment comes at a price. And if it's not at a price and there's a long wait list and people die because they go in and out of hospitals instead of getting into treatment centers that, um, you know, you get them detox and then the therapy starts because no one in their right mind starts to drink or use or whatever is the way that they, I did because it's fun, right? Like it's insidious and usually it's masking other things like anxiety or, um, other types of mental illnesses that ultimately then are uncovered in in treatment. Um, so yeah, hopefully that answers <laughs> a little bit of your question around that um, little detour that I had <laughs> um, in my early adulthood, late teen years. Um, and it took me many years to kind of, I guess, like build back from that. By the time I went to treatment, a lot of my high school and university friends were like graduating with undergraduate degrees, going off to jobs or law, med school, you know, masters, traveling the world. And I was no joke working two minimum wage jobs, going to recovery meetings like once or even twice a day, riding a bike around the town that I'd moved to where the treatment center was located and really very much felt like 
what have I done with my life? Like four years prior, I was winning awards, top of this, top of that on multiple sports teams and fast forward. And it was like the bottom of the bottom, right? (laughs) Um, And yeah, when I got sober was when it kind of all hit me and it made me realize like, at the time, even though in hindsight, I was so young at the time, I felt like I would never, I guess, catch up. Um, And now I see that there is no catching up in life, right? Like we don't catch up. Say you have a running injury and you lose six months of training. We don't catch up. That's your journey. Own your journey. And that that experience ultimately will help you in the future, right? But at the time, I felt like I was I was behind everybody else. Uh, yes, I can relate to this actually a lot. And sort of that feeling of so much achievement and then you're holding on so tight and then you get to university and kind of let it go a little bit and then it just snowballs out of control. Mm-hmm. And then... I really liked what you said, and I think it's important, and this is more kind of relevant to my story, where people say, you know, if you're an alcoholic, then you can, you know, go to AA and quit drinking. And that's sort of the hard line where it's like, no, you don't, the amount doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a positive relationship with this, and it's not making you feel good, you can quit drinking, no questions asked, and that's fine. And it's like, I think we're finally getting there now where people can be sober without having to also say like they had to hit bottom. Exactly. And like, I think in my story, if I had felt, and this is why I'm so happy to see this um, direction that um, I guess the sobriety or whatever you want to call it, that whole movement is taking even just frankly, like the options for non-alcoholic drinks. Cause when I um, got sober in uh, 2009, um, I was like, no joke. And I mean, part of it was probably age related, but also I think there wasn't that understanding that like you, you don't need to get to the point where you're drinking sheer alcohol, vodka straight from the bottle every day, you know, all those, like in my case, if I had, I guess, been more aware of two things. One was the option to stop drinking without hitting a bottom um, and that it was more socially acceptable to say no in that way. And then second was that if I had been maybe more aware of within my own specific family history, um, deaths that had occurred um, down the chain of like great grandparents, et cetera, from um, related to alcohol, I may have, may have been able to, um, you know, still choose ultimately the same path of sobriety, but at like a much less advanced stage in my case. Um, it's tricky because I mean, we, this is kind of just anything in life. Like we don't know what, what it would yeah. look like. Maybe I would have known all that and still gone down the path I went down. But I do know now as a person that's sober and lives sober, I am more than happy to have other friends, whether or not they identify as, you know, sort of, I guess, like alcoholics. I don't, I don't really care. It's just nice to know that I'm not alone in choosing not to drink. And that said, Honestly, like 90% of my social group, um, they're all normies, I call them. <laughs> yeah. So like they don't have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol. And we, you know, go out for dinners and have parties and this and that. And it's totally fine. Um, but it is nice to have the odd person who, for whatever reason, chooses not to and, and kind of gets it, right? Because, you know, it makes it easier to not be completely alone. Um, and I was often um, outside of, you know, 
groups of people that also were in like formal recovery from say like an addiction. Other than that, I was alone in this for years. And now it feels like there's this lovely bridge forming between people that choose to stop drinking for whatever reason it is, even if it just makes them feel shitty the next day. And also people that maybe, maybe they do ideally need to like avoid it for the rest of their lives because it's too dangerous for them to try to to try to drink safely again there's that whole spectrum but we can all relate to hey life is way more than you know and nowadays like it's way more than like going out for those glasses of wine you know every friday night right um and it's funny because the longer i have sober the more i guess i forget not forget but like the more i alcohol doesn't cross my mind basically at all, unless I am in, say, a meeting focused on recovery from alcohol addiction, or I am like physically with someone who's like, I don't know, offering me a glass of wine. And I obviously say no, right? Like other than that, I don't think about alcohol at all. Like I can, you know, walk right into a restaurant that's serving wine everywhere. You know, it's not in my day-to-day life at all. Like it has nothing to do with my life anymore other than being someone who's sober. So that's why I think on social media and like just in general, I'm not the type of person who's like kind of making it part of my, I don't even know how to put it, like this big noun in my like bio or something. Like it's just part of me. A lot of people don't even realize I am sober until we get into a situation where I decline alcohol for like the seventh time in a row and they're like, oh, like (laughs) cluing in, right? But it's not really a huge part of me on a day-to-day basis anymore, even though it's a huge part of my life history. So just want to take a second to thank our next sponsor, Athletic Greens. So I take AG1 by Athletic Greens every day. I gave it a try because I wanted better gut health and I wanted to feel like I was getting everything that I needed that I don't feel like I get from pills, which I never take consistently. So it's the idea that all of the vitamins and minerals can be in one simple thing that I take each morning that has really made this something that I'm sticking to. So I talk about it every week, how it tastes good, and that is such a huge thing. And so my new kind of routine is to do it in the night before as I set my coffee maker. I also put my scoop in with cold water, put it in the fridge, and then in the morning I wake up and it's the first thing that I do. And I feel like then all my bases are covered and I still eat a healthy diet, but I don't have to worry about the prebiotics and the probiotics and all of the additional things that my body needs to be training at the level that I am attempting to train at, aka just really putting a lot out there and still dealing with three-year-old cooking me in the head in the middle of the night, which I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate to, is giving me so much energy that I'm doing this podcast at night, which never happens. So huge thanks to AG1. So if you want to take ownership of your health, today is a good time to start. Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com backslash TRW. That's athleticgreens.com backslash TRW and check it out. Totally. Yeah. And we do need to move on from this, but I think it's so important for people to hear this because I also think this is the last thing I'll say on it, but I think we're getting to the point where like when I was partying too much and I told my parents like, Hey, I got to back off from this. There was this 
oh my God, don't tell anyone because it could affect if you get a job and it could affect this. And there was a, such a stigma behind the person. And I think now we're realizing more like, wait a minute, alcohol is actually a poison. It's not that there's a bunch of bad humans walking around and we have been marketed that we need to have this to be cool and be social. And we're seeing sort of the impacts of that insane amount of marketing at young people mm-hmm. to fit in and all of the stuff. And we're finally like almost outsmarting it where we're like, oh, actually this stuff is totally crazy. And if you take away the patio and your friends and it's just you and like a little shot of poison in a dark basement, it's not actually something that you want. And I think that's kind of energizing in a way because it gives people the freedom of choice to be like, oh, I can, I can just not drink. And there's no like stigma that I am a quote alcoholic. Totally. Now people don't even, yeah, they don't even realize. Right. So it's changed a lot in the last 10 years. And I am so thankful for that. And part of it is just people like you who are obviously so accomplished speaking openly about it, about it. So thank you so much for sharing all of that. And I'm like, oh my God, this is going to need to be a two-part series. You have way too much interesting (laughs) stuff to get into. Okay. Okay. So at some point, and I'm just going to kind of like get right into the numbers here because this is amazing. You're like, I'm drinking a lot. I get sober. I'm not going to do anything competitive. And then like, oh, surprise, surprise. I can run a marathon in two hours and 43 minutes. So like, give us the quote <laughs> of how that happened. That's funny. There's <laughs> <I learned laughs> a lot between going to treatment for four months and running a 243 marathon. <laughs> um, so I ended up um, going back to school, finishing my degree, um, working, I then went to BCAT, studied HR there, went into HR, went into consulting. My husband and I, um, who I also met in all those years, um, he's from Edmonton, um, Alberta. (laughs) And we moved there. I know the wrong direction. So he moved up to Edmonton for his job. And I took a consulting job. And I knew no joke other than his cousin and his parents, nobody, like no friends. And so that was 2016 in the summer. I showed up at a Lululemon run store and they had a group there called Run Collective. And I showed up and there was like 60 strangers. Um, in my mind, they all look pretty hardcore. You know, they had their like CLE hats and stuff that when like CLE was like first kind of on the scene. And I was so intimidated. And I'd ran um, my first marathon about a year and a half prior. And I just ran the Boston Marathon. So my first marathon was with my friend Emily. We ran Victoria. It was awful. No joke. I packed like a box of granola bars in a camel pack and filled my entire bladder of my camel pack with red gator thinking that like I just sip that and I ran the first half like way too fast and then like basically had to jog like the last 10k at like like not even jog I was walking um and then still somehow qualified for Boston inadvertently I, I didn't know much about Boston at that time but my aunt had ran it and so I did Boston And then at Boston, I showed up at Boston and was like, whoa, people, (laughs) people take running really seriously. Like I kind of at that point in my life would run, I don't know, maybe three days a week. I'd do the 8K loop around False Creek on the weekend. I'd run, I'd try to make it to like maybe 14 kilometers to like 
maybe 18 kilometers, but I'd never ran further than 30 kilometers. Um, the first two marathons that I ran. So they were both extremely, extremely difficult. The last like third of the race. But when I showed up to Edmonton, I made friends, um, training. So I just ran Boston and I realized like these people here, like some of these women here are training to like run, say a, a sub three hour marathon, for example. And I was just in awe of them and they would get together at like 5 30 AM on a Tuesday or Sunday long runs and do their workouts together. And I kind of clued in, I'm like, how, how do you all know what your workouts are? And a few of them, not all, but a few of them, some of the best ones had a coach and they all had the same coach. And I had actually met this person. Her name's Kate. She now lives in New York, but I'd met Kate um, briefly in Vancouver. And that year she herself was a top Canadian woman at the Boston Marathon. And she's too humble to say that out loud. So I will say that for her. Um, but I remember being in awe of her too. And it turns out that she was the coach of some of these women. And so I started training with them and quickly saw a lot of improvement. And then I thought, you know what? I'm going to go and get a coach. And Kate seems like the best coach I could get because I know I have a history around pressure and just, you know, I guess at that point in my life, I didn't fully trust, I didn't fully trust my relationship with running. I I do now, but at the time I didn't know where it was going to go. I, I was so scared of anything that could be potentially addictive. And um, that's probably a healthy place to be um, when you're in your first, like, you know, five to eight years of sobriety, like, and still now, like being very, very aware of like your addictive tendencies. And so um, I knew that it would be probably for the best if I had a coach who would give me my runs, tell me when to take my off days, all of that. And so I started working with Kate and um quickly saw a a fair amount of improvement, but then I started to get injured. So like at that point I didn't do any strength training, you know, I didn't even like fuel often before like my workouts. Like I would just like get up and like go. Um, I was very inexperienced um, as an athlete. So like, while I would have identified as a runner, I at that point didn't identify as an athlete. So I wasn't treating my body like an athlete. I wasn't training like an athlete. I wasn't doing any sort of strength stuff or recovery stuff, nothing. Like I was just running and it quickly showed because the, any potential I may have had in running was quickly smothered by the lack of athletic, um, sorry, I got to move again because now he's upstairs, the lack of athletic, um, I guess, attention that I was giving myself. And so I would get injury after injury and finally, um, had a, a chance to, um, get a, like a good three or four months of training in and ran a three, I think it was like a 307 marathon at New York City, which I loved. It was an amazing course, but so hard. And then came back and got my first and hopefully only stress, bone stress injury in my foot. Um, and that's why I always eat before every single run I do now is there's studies showing that if you don't, it increases um markers of bone breakdown, but that's another subject. Um, and so I came back, did a lot of 
pool, like swimming and stuff. And then came back and Kate and I worked together for four months. And I went from like a walk run to a solid fall marathon build. And that's when I ran my 243 um, at CIM. But by that point, I'd added in strength. I changed my fueling. I'd started to pay way more attention to listening to my body and running by effort. And so, you know, I think it's really important when we talk about these big leaps in time, because in my case, it looked like, and it was on paper, like a 307 a year ago, and then a 243 a year later, marathon over marathon, like not even one race between that, right? But in reality, it was like several years of slowly adding in extra elements above and beyond just the running, right? And so it was almost a case of finally, it all came together. And then I was able to execute it on race day, right? Um, and I remember one time I, <laughs> I I had this idea in my head, I was like, I want to break 245 in a marathon. It was kind of a big dream of mine, but I'd never broken three hours. And I was running with a couple of friends um, in Edmonton and one person who was fairly fairly like well-known as a photographer in, in the running world, um, sort of, <laughs> sort of commented saying, why don't you just start with a sub three? Right. And I, I know that he would have meant it in a helpful way, but in my mind, I was like, I'll show you. Right. <laughs> and so part of it was, you know, I think it's important for all of us. Like when we really firmly believe that we can do something and our coach believes, cause Kate believed I could do it too we can do that thing. And it might not happen the first time we try or the second time, but if we believe it and our coach believes it, you know, we can put the work in and eventually I firmly believe it can happen. Right. I think there's too much like hide your goals. Don't say anything because, you know, we don't want to talk about our goals. And it's like, it's at the end of the day, I think what I learned, it's just running, you know, like Laura green right now and her like amazing videos, like, you know, no one cares, like in a way we care the most, right? So like, let's own our goals. Like, let's say those goals out loud. Like it's inspiring to others to hear them. It keeps us accountable and it makes it real, you know, like it, I'm all for sharing our big goals and dreams out loud. If you don't make them, no one, no one is going to sit there and laugh at you either, right? Like no one cares that much. But like, for me, I found by saying it out loud and like, I guess, I guess like proclaiming rather naively um, that I wanted to break 245 when I'd never even broken like a 305. Um, that made it real for me, right? And it gave me something like it, it. Some people probably thought I was full of it, but like for me, it helped me, right? So my own athletes now, kind of when I'm like, "What are your big goals and dreams?" and they kind of have this, "Oh, I don't know if I should say it." I'm like, "Just say it out loud, right?" Like. <laughs> It's, it's just running at the end of the day. So we may as well enjoy, like, let's enjoy dreaming and let's enjoy creating these big goals, you know? So, yeah. yeah. And to <laughs> kind of build off that, um, like, well, I have one friend, Alyssa, who is absolutely amazing. And she's like, the difference is here is I'm just openly betting on myself. And it's like, why has that always been such a scary thing to do? And yeah, A, it's just running, nobody cares. And B, like, why not? Exactly. Just like every everything you just said. And I mean, sometimes the difficulty is that you do get responses from people that's like, yeah, right. And it's just like, let that fuel your fire when you're tired in a workout. You know what I mean? And like, 
just go after it and see what happens. I think it was either, I think it was Trevor Hoffbauer, actually. I heard him once on a podcast when he, I think it was when he made the Olympics. I can't remember what race it was, but I remember him saying something along the lines of, I'm not doing it to prove that, like, I don't think he used the word haters, like Taylor Swift style, but like, I'm not doing it to prove, I'm just sort of paraphrasing him here, but I'm not doing it to prove the haters wrong. I'm doing this to prove like the people who believed right, you know, and I feel the same way where interestingly at first, you know, there were people and I know this and I actually was told more of it after, like after the fact, then people came out of the woodwork and were like, whoa, we, we really didn't think you were going to pull that off. Right. Um, but at the time I was, you know, at first kind of thinking like, I'm going to prove everyone wrong. And the biggest person that I was, and this is, I think true for a lot of us, the biggest person that I wanted to prove um, to herself was actually me, right? I was ultimately seeking redemption of redemption against myself in a way, right? For, for everything that I felt like I had, I guess in hindsight, still had shame over, right? Like every way that I had failed myself, failed my the girl that was this bright, bright, loving, healthy girl. And I, you know, not honored her needs, I was going at it from a perspective of, I am doing this for her and I'm going to prove every piece of myself that, you know, is a piece of myself I never want to revisit ever. I am going to literally run that person to the ground (laughs) out there. Right. And so in a lot of my training, I would think about the past and I would think about the type of person that I want to be versus the type of person I used to be. And I, I would almost, it's very like, I guess like cathartic um, approach to training where you like, train out that person right so like by the time I started to run that last marathon the one that I ran in 243 I remember starting and feeling like all I have to do is and I think I wrote this too like all I have to do is persevere today because there is nothing left to prove anymore like I'd already proven it to myself in training and I no longer cared at that point what anybody else thought I could have gone out there and walked and it wasn't about any other any other person by that point. So what I love about some of these longer training buildups we have for, you know, whether it's ultras or the marathon or or whatever we're training for is it gives us time to train physically, but also gives us time to kind of evolve um, emotionally and like spiritually and mentally where, you know, we might start off a goal aiming for some time or some, I want to prove this person wrong or whatever that objective is. And, and over the course of these months or sometimes years, um, we realize at the end of the day that it's not about proving anything else to anybody. Right. Um, It's, it's about, evolving as a person. And so for me, I've never felt as free as I felt starting that last race um, where it no longer was about any time goal, about proving anything to anyone. I just went out there and ran. And that's what resulted in the 243, right? Like it wasn't me obsessively worrying about my pace every 500 meters the entire way, looking at my watch the whole way. Like all of that work was done in the training. So yeah. And that was actually the last marathon I ran because then there's COVID and then I, then I got pregnant and et cetera. So I can't wait to run another one again. I think, um, I think what you said is super important and kind of like 
So I, I don't know where I'm going with this. I guess I did a very similar thing of like, I want to prove to my older self or my younger self that I wasn't a failure because I wasted some of perhaps the most like athletic time in my mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. by partying and stuff like that. And I think it's the same as trying to prove to external factors that it's great if you can use that as fuel, but you equally have to be at peace with it because Mm -hmm. you're never going to be able to undo the past. And I think it sounds like you were in such a healthy place to use this. And then, as you said, like got to race day and you're like, okay, I've done it. Where as I definitely was like, okay, so if I do this, then I will have proved it to myself. Mm -hmm. And then I got to the end of it and was like, well, that wasn't enough. I guess I have to do an Ironman next week. (laughs) And then I was like, well, I guess, you know, that didn't work. I've got to run a hundred miles. And like, continuously chasing it. So I think the difference is like you also did the internal work and and were at peace with that and then able to use it as fuel. So I think it has to be like a balance from both sides almost. I don't know if that made any sense. Oh yes. Like perfect. Like there was, you know, when we want to talk about the real training as an athlete was to be quite honest, like therapy, like being brutally honest with myself, like learning how to um, accept emotions like those pieces that I learned, um, you know, in my twenties have now helped me um, as an athlete, but more so as a person. Like athletes are people, and the, you know, I think um, really your athletic achievements only go so far. Like running a two forty three marathon, um, it was interesting because after that, it was as if people saw me as some sort of serious athlete or something, and yet you know, one night versus the next, it's not like I had changed. Like I was still the same person that, um, had done everything I'd done for years prior to get to that point. Right. All that had changed was my physical ability to physically run those paces for 42.2 kilometers. Right. So it is interesting, um, thinking of it from that way, like the emotional work is, is the biggest way that I have changed as a person. Like the athletic front is like a very small piece of that, that, and it's a lovely way to express that in one avenue of life, you know? So. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed episode one from Lauren and stay tuned for the second half of her episode where we talk about pregnancy, postpartum, and everything in between.